You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. All right, friends, I'm going to pray as we get into this word here. Father, uh, thank you so much for speaking to us. And as we come to you today, as always, we come to you as people who are in need. We need to hear from you. We need to be changed by you. And we ask that you would use your word now to do that work in us. Holy Spirit, as we've just heard about you and your ministry in, the, in these texts that we just read, would you, Holy Spirit, come and work among us right now, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanna, I'm eager to get into the word here, but I feel like I have to pause and pull aside and go, happy Halloween, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's kind of weird doing church on Halloween, but uh, someone actually earlier was saying to me, they were like, uh, I, really, I really wanted to come in my costume today, Pastor Joel, but someone told me I shouldn't do that and I'd be distracting. I don't know, maybe we should be fun enough to be a church that, you know, comes and gathers with our costumes on, but maybe it would be distracting. In any case, Today is not just Halloween, it's also uh, rooted in a Christian holiday. We get the name Halloween from All Hallows' Eve, which is the day before All Saints' Day, which is where we remember all the Christians who have come before us and who are alive on earth today. So, uh, I don't know, use this as an opportunity to celebrate All Saints' Day or All Hallows' Eve as well, you know, and dress up in your crazy costumes and remember that we're a part of something way bigger than us, the church uh, universal as, as we uh, celebrate that today. So today, though, as, as we get into this word, we are continuing in our series called Disciple Equip, and it's just been a time of recalibrating and, and looking at what does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus, and what does it mean to multiply disciples of Jesus, and we've been looking at these different signposts, we're calling them, that's these symbols up here above me, and we've looked at follow, and we said that disciples of Jesus uh, surrender their lives daily to follow Him, and they find life in Him. We looked at love, and we said that God is love, and so we receive God's love. We give God's love to others. Last week, we looked at the third signpost there, believe, and we said we both believe God's truth, and we share God's truth with others, and this week, we're making a shift. And does anybody know what that other symbol might mean. You know, oftentimes when, when I ask people that question and they look at this symbol, they think, well, is it a blood droplet? I don't know. And honestly, that could work as well, but that's not what, what it's there for. Um, in this case, we've chosen this symbol because it represents water. And water symbolizes baptism. And what does baptism symbolize? I mean, most of us who are Christians don't even fully realize what baptism symbolizes. In this case, we're highlighting the fact that baptism symbolizes change, symbolizes change, and that's our signpost for today. Repentance and baptism are the first steps onto the pathway of following Jesus. And baptism is this powerful outward symbol of an inward change. It's, it's a visible sign of an invisible grace that God has done in our lives. And even as we baptize people, we say, we are buried with Christ in baptism and we raised with him to newness of life. We've died with Christ and now we are resurrected 
with him. And so disciples are people who have been spiritually transformed in a powerful way. We've gone from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. We've gone from being enemies of God to being children of God. We've gone from being in the world to being in Christ. We've gone from old creation to new creation. We've gone from old self to new self. But that is just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Becoming a Christian is not the end of change. It's the beginning. Following Jesus means being in an ongoing process of change and transformation. In fact, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that as we behold God's glory, as we see who he truly is, we actually become transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another, like steps continuing to grow. And it says, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. And so we're gradually, as Christians, becoming more and more like Jesus. I hope that sounds familiar at this point. You might have already started thinking, okay, that sounds like what discipleship is. You remember our discipleship definition? It's being with Jesus to become like Jesus so we can live like Jesus. So change is not just a one-time event for the Christian. It's an ongoing part of living as a disciple. And the Bible says that the primary agent for that change in our life is God the Holy Spirit. He's the one through whom we go from death to life, through whom we spend time with Jesus. He's the one who dwells in our hearts and he guides us in our everyday living. He's the one who we cooperate with in that pursuit of ongoing change, which leads to us becoming more like Jesus. But we all know that there's a problem because it's not just you know, an easy, smooth ride along the way. Within the heart of every disciple, there is a battle that is raging. I'm sure all of you can relate to that. And we're, this battle is actually working against the change that the Holy Spirit is seeking to work in our lives. And so we're going to explore this battle, and we're going to see how the Holy Spirit shapes us in the middle of it. So let's look at Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. And I'm going to be working from a different translation than the one that are in the uh, pew backs in front of you there, but you could grab one of those Bibles. You'll be able to follow along pretty well nonetheless. And uh, I've mentioned this the last few weeks. If, you're, if you don't have a Bible, please grab one of those Bibles and take it home with you as a gift. We'd love to give that to you. Here's what Galatians chapter 5 said. This is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the church in Galatia. He says, But I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh has desires that are opposed to the Spirit, and the Spirit has desires that are opposed to the flesh. For these are in opposition to each other, so that you cannot do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, so the battle we're being told here is between these two things, either to live by the Spirit or to carry out the desires of the flesh. Do you ever feel like you have an inner battle? Do you ever uh, feel like that's going on inside of you, perhaps in a moment of fear, perhaps in a moment of conflict with someone else, perhaps in a moment of 
temptation, you feel like you're actually at war with yourself. Even non-Christians, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. You might even experience this to some extent, that you've been given a conscience from God and, and there's this inner moral tension that you might experience at times. But as Christians, this tension is far more intense because we actually have two natures. We have the spirit and the flesh. Now, in other places in Scripture, this battle is described as taking place in our hearts. And it's not only in our hearts, though, because we can see that there's action that's associated with this. It says, live by the Spirit or carry out the desires of the flesh. This is active. And in that war between our flesh and the Spirit, Paul here is also contrasting living under the law that's associated with the flesh and living in freedom. This, he didn't mention it here, but he's been making this argument this entire book leading up to this point. And he associates freedom with living by the Spirit. Now, we would like to think that freedom is doing whatever we please. It's doing whatever we want. But deep down, if we investigate that, that uh, belief, deep down we know that it's not true. It is certainly a kind of freedom to do whatever we want. But as sinners, we, we know that doing whatever we want is actually ultimately bondage to our own flesh, to our own desires. It's bondage to sin. So you go, okay, well, maybe there's a different way that I could pursue freedom. Maybe if, if God just tells me what to do in every single situation that I'm going to face, how about he just gives me a really, 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 really long list of rules to follow, and then I know I'm always living in that freedom of obedience to him. And most of us go, that sounds like punishment. I don't know. That does not sound good. I don't want a longer list of rules to fall. We all know that this isn't how it works. That just because God says it doesn't mean that we either want to or even will do it. Those of you guys who are parents, you know that this is true. You have a toddler, right? And a toddler... Uh, shows you the human heart. He, he actually reflects the reality of what all of us as adults even uh, experience. This toddler wants to do the exact opposite of what they are told to do. And we, again, as adults, we're, we're the same. There are not enough rules or lists of, of laws enough to constrain our hearts to God's will. Instead, he conforms us to his will. And this is true freedom. God makes us new, and he places his spirit within us to guide us in every moment of every day. And we don't need a new rule, a new list of laws for you know, every single moment, every little thing. And yet God also doesn't just make us puppets that he's pulling the strings to up in heaven. No. Instead, it's this wonderful dance, this communion that we get to experience with God. We live by His Spirit. And He changes us in the process. There, there are three different means of change that I believe 
the Bible teaches us that the Spirit uses to do that. We're going to ask this question, how does the Holy Spirit change us? And, and if you want to think of it in, in the framework or the language of Galatians 5 that we just looked at, think of it as how to live by the Spirit. Okay, so how does the Holy Spirit change us? How to live by the Spirit but before we get into the true answer to that question, I actually want to dispel a common misconception about how the Holy Spirit changes us. Um, there's, and I'll use it, an illustration. So back, back in the day when I first moved to Seattle, 1998, anybody around during that time in Seattle? Maybe? Okay. Okay. Uh, in 1998, it was, you know, the dot-com boom was really taking off, right? This is before everything completely collapsed. And there was this company called Cosmo.com. I don't know if any of you guys remember Cosmo. A number of my friends actually worked there. And, and here was Cosmo's business model. They had their website, right? And, and you could go onto their website and you could order, like, drinks or snacks or you could even get a movie. I don't remember if it was even DVDs yet at that point. It was probably, like, VHS tapes. And they would send, they had, like, a whole fleet of people who would ride these scooters. And they would come to your house with your movie and your snacks and your drinks and all that stuff. And I remember thinking, man, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. I just don't know why you would ever want to do that. I remember thinking, why don't you just go down to Blockbuster, man, and just go get your movie there? Why don't you just go down to the store and get your drinks there, you know? And of course, we know now that that was a great idea. It was just a little too early, right? Now we've got Uber Eats and Instacart and Amazon.com. Everybody will bring you the stuff, and it'll be almost instant, and I would like to propose that our belief of how the Holy Spirit changes us is more influenced by Amazon and Uber Eats and Instacart than it is by the Bible. Robert Mulholland Jr., uh, in his book, Invitation to a Journey, he says it better than I could. Here's what he says. If you ask most Christians about their spiritual journey, they will say that it is a day-by-day -day experience with its ups and downs, its victories and defeats, successes and failures. In brief, it is a process. But if you were to ask them how God works transformation in their lives, many would indicate that God zaps them at some point and instantly changes them. See, we've come to believe, at least functionally, if not really deep down, that our spiritual growth is like a product that we order one night and it arrives the next morning. And yet we know that this isn't how any natural growth works, right? In a garden, you don't plant seeds and have a fully grown vineyard the next day. Or as parents, you know, you don't lay down your baby one night and wake up with an adult in a crib. Amen? This is a process. And God does not zap us. You know, he can, and sometimes he does. There are moments of transformation that we might experience that are instantaneous, that are very quick. Absolutely, I, I've experienced some of those moments, but that's not usually how he works. He usually patiently conforms us to the image of Jesus as we live by his Spirit's power slowly over time. 
And so that's, uh, that's the, the misconception that I wanted to dispel. Now let's look at how he actually changes us. How does the Holy Spirit change us? Now, we could say as Christians, the Holy Spirit is always with us. He's always actively at work. And so he can use just about anything or everything to change us if we're willing. I mean, I even told you a story last week about how I was taking my dog out at 3 a.m. and God used that as a moment of change in my life. He can do anything. But there are three primary means that he uses to change us and that the Bible talks about. Here's what I want to share with you. The first is he uses spiritual disciplines. These are practices that help us to spend time with God. Whether we enjoy the disciplines on our own or in community, they're they're designed to cultivate spiritual formation, meaning that By practicing the disciplines, we actively are cooperating with God the Holy Spirit to pursue total conformity to His will. This is training ourselves, training our souls. Now, some examples of this include uh, things like Bible study or prayer, worship, fellowship. You know, we, we did a whole series on spiritual disciplines just a year ago. There are tons of them, depending on who you ask. There's generosity, sharing testimony, Silence and solitude, Sabbath rest, confession and repentance, just like we did earlier on in our service, fasting, sharing the gospel, baptism, communion. There are so many more. We've even, last week in our community groups, taught you uh, the discipline of the daily examine. And, And this coming week, we'll learn root to fruit. These are different ways of practicing spending time with God and being conformed to His will. And so ask yourself this question. What practices are in my life? What what disciplines or habits do I have, whether they're spiritual or unspiritual, that are shaping me? Who am I becoming through the things that I'm regularly practicing? The second way that the Spirit works is through suffering. And, And as I read that word, you might be thinking to yourself, Whoa, 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 this does not sound good. Why, why are we saying that suffering is a way that the Spirit works in our lives? Does that mean that we have to go out now and try and suffer or something like that? And, and you don't have to worry. That's not where we're going with this. Some Christians, early Christians especially, they, they actually made that mistake. They got into things like asceticism and, and self-mutilation, all this crazy stuff. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. Don't worry. What do we mean when we say that suffering is a a way in which the Holy Spirit changes us? Well, it's not something that we're meant to manufacture. It's not something that we can even control. But suffering is a part of just living in a fallen world. It's going to happen. So we need to think of suffering as more of a when and not if. And when we suffer, we have to ask that same question. Who am I becoming? Suffering is an opportunity for growth as a follower of Jesus. We know that Jesus is our suffering servant, that that's a part of his his title in Scripture. And so we want to learn how to live like him in the midst of suffering. And likewise, as we walk with other people, we know that other people that we're walking with are going to suffer as well, and we have that opportunity to help them to suffer with Jesus rather than apart from Him, so that as they do, they become more like Him, and they live more like Him in the midst of that suffering. 
The third way that we are changed by the Holy Spirit is through sharing life with others. And some of you are like, hold on, we don't need another category. Sharing life with others is suffering. So why do we have a new, why do we have a new one? And, and, you know, we can all joke about that. And yeah, 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 of course, it, it certainly can be. It certainly can be very challenging. But we also know that Christian fellowship can be sweet. It can be an absolute joy. And God can shape us through that positive experience as well. Either way, though, Spending time with other people, it is going to shape us. You know, discipleship, we've said, is not something that can happen in isolation. We can't do it on our own. Our relationship with Jesus is absolutely vital, but so is our relationship with Jesus' body, the church. And so we need both. And we're going to actually focus on the church in just a couple of weeks, uh, in our final week through Disciple Quip, as we look at commitment. But sharing life with others also includes people outside the church as well, right? Those relationships shape us for better or for worse. Who is someone who you have spent a ton of time with in your life? Have you ever noticed that as you do, you, you actually become more like them? You start to think like those people that you spend the most time with. You start to talk like those people. You might even start to look a little bit like them. You know, you might have known one of those cute old couples who've been married for like 50 plus years, and, and you know, there's just their mannerisms start to get similar. They might even dress the same, <laughs> that kind of a thing. Everyday life is formative. Relationships are formative, whether with our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, anywhere where we live, learn, work, and play. All of these are spaces where the Holy Spirit is at work to change the world, but also to change us. And so we want to be asking that question, in my relationships, who am I becoming? We have to ask this question, am I just as concerned with who I am in the middle of all of these situations that I face as I am with the situations themselves? Am I just as concerned with this, the the state of my soul as I am with my circumstances. And as we do that, as we practice the spiritual disciplines, as we suffer, as we spend time with others, are we inviting the Holy Spirit to change us through those circumstances? Sometimes we're resistant to change, if we're honest, right? There's a part of us that doesn't want to be disciplined. There's a part of us that doesn't want to suffer. There's a part of us that doesn't want to share life with others because it's hard. It just is. We have to ask, what part of us is that? And Paul is going to tell us here that it's our flesh. It's our old self. It's not just, when we talk about flesh, we're not just talking about our physical bodies. It is that, but it's more. It's the person who we were before Jesus began to change us. It's the person who we will still live with until he is done changing us. It's that old way of life, those old habits, those old desires. It's that battle that's, that's raging. We have to ask, will I live by the flesh or by the spirit? And some of you are going, okay, well, that's fine, but... How do I even know what exactly the difference between those two things is? The Apostle Paul is going to tell us here. He contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit 
of the Spirit. So let's look first at the works of the flesh. Verses 19 through 21 told us that. They said, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, depravity, idolatry, sorcery, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish rivalries, dissensions, factions, envying, murder, drunkenness, carousing, and similar things. I'm warning you as I had warned you before, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So these are the works of the flesh. And this list is not comprehensive. You might have noticed in verse 21 it said, and similar things. He, he could have gone on for a really long time, but he chose not to. He's saying, you get what I'm saying. What's going through your mind as I read that list, as, as you heard it read even earlier in the service? What's going through your mind? I'm guessing there are a few different reactions, responses to what is said here, and you might even be having several different responses. Perhaps the first one is conviction. For some of you, as, as that list is read, you're thinking of the ways in which you have done either some or all of the things on that list, and you hear that warning, and that is a strong and maybe even scary warning. It says that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But we have to keep in mind that this is speaking to those who it said practice such things. In verse 21, it said that. So this is meant to cause us to consider, what am I making a practice of in my life? What are you making a practice of in your life? You see, the same way that you practice spiritual disciplines, and that can form you into the image of Jesus, practicing the works of the flesh can actually deform you to the point where you're less and less like him. It's like an undoing of transformation that he's trying to work in your life. So what are you, what are you making a practice of in your life? Are you making a practice of some of these things that are listed here? Are you making a practice of sexual immorality? That's anything any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage? Is sexual immorality a practice for you? Lust, pornography, are these your unspiritual disciplines? How about idolatry? Verse 20, we talked about idolatry last week. We said that it's giving yourself, it's living for anything other than God, and it doesn't necessarily involve a statue, right? So how about uh, your life, is there anything that you are living for apart from Him? Think about your work, maybe. Maybe work is an area that, that, that can become an idol. Are you sacrificing things like your family or your faith on the idol of work, on the altar of work? Or sports, right? Maybe, maybe you're, learn, you're beginning to sacrifice, you're getting on the bandwagon with the Kraken as they come into town. I don't know. And that's just, that's your thing. It's, I got to focus all my attention onto this sports team. Or maybe it's organized sports as your family, uh, as your kids get older and they want to get into competitive sports. Man, that, that whole world wants to suck the life out of your family, okay? <laughs> not, not to say that it's completely bad, but man, that can be an idol. That can be a place where you lay everything down to sacrifice for it. 
politics. Maybe you're just completely obsessed with keeping up to date with every little thing. And you're focused on your party, just totally obsessed with it. You're totally obsessed with, you know, Fox News or MSNBC, and you're, you're consumed with it. Is it an idol? Maybe it's a person. Maybe there's a person in your life who you're willing to give up everything that you have going with Jesus in order to get their acceptance, in order to maintain that relationship. Is there a person who you've basically said, I'll do anything in order to have this relationship. I'm even willing to sin. I'm even willing to leave behind my faith. Is idolatry a practice in your life? How about conflict? Verse 20. Hostility, he said. Strife, jealousy, anger, selfish rivalries, dissension, factions, envy. We're we're all going to face conflict in this world. That's just a fact. But we have to ask ourselves the question, do I cultivate it? Do I actually stir it up in my relationships? Do you make a practice of these things? How about intoxication, verse 21? Too much alcohol, getting stoned, doing hard drugs. This is warning us that if we practice these things, we won't inherit the kingdom of God if they're a regular ongoing, unrepentant part of our lives. And so this should challenge us to to stop immediately and to start living by the Spirit, not the flesh. But you see, conviction isn't the only response I'd imagine we would receive from reading this list. For, For others, it might be celebration. And I don't mean celebrating the evil deeds that are listed here. I mean celebrating the ways in which God has already worked in your life. I mean, some of you are like me, and I read this list and I go, no, I'm not perfect. But God has, uh, there have been some of these things that have been a part of my life in the past, a regular part of my life. And God transformed me. He changed me. Maybe that's you. Maybe you think, man, God, these things were, were practices before, but then you snatched me up. You gave me your spirit. You've changed my desires. You've changed my life. And reading this list just makes you want to celebrate. Praise God that he has freed us from practicing these things. But still, there might be one last response to this list, and that's aversion. Maybe you you think about just, you look at that and you go, man, those are some horrible things. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I want to run as far away from these sins. You've seen the way that they've affected you, how they've caused devastation in your life or in the lives of those who you love, and you go, I just don't want to have anything to do with them. And I would say aversion is the right response. Conviction and celebration might be the right response too, but aversion is the right response. We're meant to see how awful the works of the flesh are, whether we're successfully avoiding them or not. And that lack of desire for these things is actually a gift from the Spirit. It's meant to lead us to see a better way to live, not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. And when we live by the Spirit, as we change, He actually produces fruit in us. As we cooperate with Him, He produces this fruit. Let's read about that, beginning in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, It's joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its, with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also behave in accordance with the Spirit. Now if you're a Christian, there's an amazing reminder that we find here, and it's, uh, I think it's in verse 24. It says, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now it says, you have taken up your cross to follow him. You've died to yourself, and you've found life in Jesus, and now you belong to Christ, this tells us. Amen? Amen. Amen. And now you've been brought into this new reality. You're not enslaved to the flesh any longer. You're not dependent on the law and a list of rules in order to live in the ways that God has designed for you to live. You have the freedom now to live by the Spirit, which is living like Jesus. And you get to do that more and more and more. You actually become more loving, more joyful. Who doesn't want more love and more joy, amen? Who doesn't want to be more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more good? Is that, is that the right way to say that? More gooder? I don't know. More, more faithful, more gentle, more able to actually exercise self-control. Now, we said that the goal of discipleship is that we're more like Jesus, and this fruit that we've just read about is the character of Jesus. This is what he's like. And the fruit that the Spirit produces in our lives when we cooperate with him, it's just like the fruit on a tree. You know what I mean? When you, if you cultivate all that soil around that tree, the, the whole environment around it, its exposure to the sun, the water that it gets, and all of those things, that apple that you pick off of that tree, it won't help but be able to have, be the most amazing apple that you could ever eat. It, it won't produce diseased apples because it's actually healthy. And in the same way as we live by the Spirit... He produces these fruits in us or this fruit in us so that it flows out of us. A lot of people who think about uh, discipleship and the way that the Spirit works in our lives, they, they talk about this, they say that it's reflexive. It's reflexive, it, it, meaning it's built into our muscle memory. So for example, if somebody uh, you know, opposes me or offends me, all of a sudden, now love is not the last place that I go because I know that I'm supposed to. It's actually the first place that I go because I want to. It's this reflexive, natural response, natural reaction, because my desires have become more aligned with the Spirit's desires. I'm being changed. And the fruit of the Spirit now is becoming second nature in me. Don't you want that? Man, it's just such a beautiful view of the change that can happen when we avail ourselves to God, the Holy Spirit. The big idea today, God has given us his spirit, so we are being changed by God, and we get to help others be changed by God. Don't you want to be more 
like Jesus. And yet, as much as we might want that right now, in this moment, we recognize that this is still a battle. It's a battle every single day. Until one day, when we step into eternity with Jesus and he completes the work of that change that he has begun. But until then, that battle, it it rages on. But what I want you to take away from today, Christian, is that the battle is normal. It is normal. If you're not battling, you're either completely self-deceived and self-righteous, or you've given up. And so don't don't dream of that, that Instacart spirituality, that one where you get that instantaneous change, but also don't let the slowness of your change or the shortcomings of your own flesh condemn you today. Don't let them overwhelm you today. Today, your task is to focus yourself on Jesus, on his person, on his character, on the fruit of his spirit, and avail yourself, ready yourself for his change. And we have this great story of this kind of transformation in Scripture. I want to close with the story of Peter, the Apostle Peter. I'll begin in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He's with the disciples there, and he's praying in the garden. He's on his knees. He's sweating drops of blood, it says. And Jesus is praying. He's saying, Father, if possible, allow me not to go to the cross, but not my will, your will be done. And the disciples are supposed to be off praying as well. And Jesus goes to them, and he finds them, and they're they're not. <laughs> They're all asleep. And Jesus wakes them up. And he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus is he's revealing that battle between the spirit and the flesh. And we see here that Jesus, he understands. He knows what it's like. Because in a sense, Jesus lived In the flesh, at least in the sense of his humanity, he went through everything that we go through. He experienced everything that we experience. He says in the Bible, it says that that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Peter, on the other hand, (laughs) was not without sin, like every other human being who has ever lived. And one example... uh, On that very same night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus tells him, he says, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And here's a guy, Peter, he's he's a guy who's extremely zealous. He's passionate. He always wants to step out and do the right thing, and he's he's an eager beaver. He just wants to get after it. And he's been changed by Jesus a ton already through three years of spending time with him. And so, of course, Peter immediately tells Jesus, no way, I would never, ever deny you. And yet later on that very same night, as Jesus was standing his trial, 
as Jesus was being lied about and he was being falsely accused of evil, Peter is standing outside, perhaps within earshot of what was going on with Jesus, and Peter was completely overwhelmed with fear. And and he's standing, it says, outside around a charcoal fire. He's warming his hands. And while he's there, his, his fears got the better of him. His flesh got the better of him. And just as Jesus predicted, three times different people asked him if he had been one of Jesus' disciples. And three times Peter said, I don't know that man. He even was afraid of a little servant girl who had asked him this question. He was afraid of what she was going to do if she found out that he was one of Jesus' followers. Yes, he had already changed so much, and yet he still failed. And as soon as it hit him that night what he had done, as soon as he realized the gravity of his denial of Jesus, the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. And if the story had ended there, it would just be a sad story. Just like it would be a sad ending to the story if Jesus had merely died an unjust death that night. But a few days later, Jesus rises in a new, resurrected, transformed body, and it becomes clear that while there are tragedies along the way, this is not a story that ends in tragedy. It's a story that ends in triumph. And, and the day after Jesus' resurrection, it seems that Peter has gone back to his old ways, his old life as a fisherman. And he's out with some of the other disciples fishing. And perhaps he didn't believe that his transformation took. Perhaps he didn't believe that there was any way that Jesus would have him back. Perhaps he thought he was no longer useful for ministry. But as they're fishing, the disciples actually relive an experience that had happened earlier when Jesus had first called them after not catching any fish, Jesus tells them to put their nets on the other side of the boat, and they have a bigger catch than they can even haul in. And when they pull into shore, they see that Jesus has prepared a typical Galilean breakfast. He's got fish and, and bread, and Jesus has prepared it, get this, over a charcoal fire. Just like the one that Peter stood at while denying Jesus, while warming his hands. And it was this setting where Jesus turned to Peter and he asked him three times. He said, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you, Jesus. You know I love you. Jesus asked him a second time. And then a third. And finally, it's this third time that it says Peter was grieved. Because at this point, he understands that Jesus was giving him a chance to change, a chance to, to return to him. And you can imagine Peter fighting through the tears as, as he says to Jesus a third time, and he says, 
Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And not only does Jesus restore Peter in that moment, he does, but he also commissions Peter for ministry. He lets him start over new. And he says to Peter, he says, follow me, just like he had said all those years before. Now, this isn't the end of Peter's story. If you keep reading the New Testament, he has a lot more monumental triumphs and tragedies because Peter is a real guy. He's just like you and me. He messes up. He needs God's spirit and God's grace every single day. But Peter's story is this great reminder that when we encounter our own need for change, we can be hopeful. We don't have to be despairing. We can be hopeful because this is a part of God's work in our lives. This is actually what God is up to. He wants to work in this moment, and now we don't need to fear failure. We don't need to fear suffering or being weak or or sinning because we know that these are the exact things that Jesus died for, the exact things that he sent his spirit to us so that he could transform in us. And when we embrace this truth, we're actually liberated We're free to participate with him in his work of change rather than to resist it. And when we do, he makes us more like Jesus and he bears the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus to redeem us, to give us new life, to transform us. But Jesus, we thank you for sending the Spirit to continue that work of change in us. And we thank you for the promise that you will complete the work that you have finished. And we know that you will do that one day when we see you face to face. Thank you for that confidence that we can have. And we pray, God, that every day until that day, you would give us the strength the will, the desire to surrender ourselves to you, to to submit ourselves to your Holy Spirit's work as you change us and make us more like you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.